0: We shall turn now to the word of God, to the book of the Revelation, the chapter 4. And we may read some verses from this chapter just now to refresh our minds. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. And immediately I was in the spirit And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And They were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come, and so on. We return to the consideration of this glorious throne that Uh, John is privileged to see. He is given this privilege, this opportunity to ascend, as it were, leaving behind the trials, the troubles, the afflictions of (coughs) the earthly scene and ascend into heaven to see the way in which God himself was actually governing what was often mysterious to such as John himself. And oftentimes, we in this world feel to understand we haven't the ability, we haven't the capacity to comprehend God's works and God's ways. And sometimes it is profitable for us in our minds to do what John did, to ascend in our thoughts and in our minds into the presence of God and view again the sovereign covenant-keeping God of his people, as John does here. He is given this invitation, come up hither. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And John no doubt understood perfectly that he was viewing the source of the sovereign power of God. The things that must happen. There was no possibility that they wouldn't happen. They were as certain as God's existence himself. And then John is here seeking for the good of the churches to whom he's to write, describing what he sees. He doesn't attempt to define it. He doesn't attempt to explain it. He simply tells us what he sees And what he hears, leaving us with the impression that what he did see and what he heard remained, even to John, somewhat mysterious. That's something we must ever understand. I hear people sometimes saying, what does this mean? What does that mean? I'm not going to believe the Bible to be God's word until I understand this, until I understand that. Until this is explained to me and that is explained to the other thing is explained to me. We have to appreciate that if we knew infallibly and understood infallibly everything that is written from Genesis to Revelation, we would be as God. But God has to remind us sometimes that he actually is God. And we are but his creatures and fallen, ignorant creatures at that. But here in the book of the Revelation, and we would remind you, it is Revelation. Uh, God is not trying to hide things from us. God is revealing things to us, as I said last week, for the comfort and consolation of his people. And as we said, the book of the Revelation is full of symbols. John is instructed to record what he sees. He's able to see whether he understands fully or not. He sees what God is doing, what God purposes through Symbols, all kinds of symbols. But we are to understand this. It would be absolutely worthless, it would be useless, if all John saw was these mysterious symbols. And he or you or I had no idea whatever what they symbolized. That would be a total and utter waste of time. John is seeing things that others have seen in the past in different circumstances and seen less clearly, as we shall note. And John had the Old Testament to go back to. And if he's seeing something here, he can go back to the Old Testament Is what I'm seeing here anywhere to be seen? What does the Old Testament tell me? What did the prophets, what did they say? What did God say about what he was revealing to them? And that's how we have to understand the scriptures. And that's how we have to understand the symbols here and the symbolic revelation we have here. Now, returning to the throne last uh, Lord's Day, we concentrated upon that or those particular objects that were before the throne so that we were able to compare and contrast what John sees about this throne and the sea of glass and the golden altar that which was actually before the throne in the same manner as these objects were before the throne in the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. Now, perhaps it would be helpful just to keep it in mind. It would help us to understand where we're going. We go back to the epistle to the Hebrews. We were looking at Some references in chapter 9 last week, but let's read from the beginning of chapter 10 just now. For the law having a shadow, the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. And what the apostle is saying here is what we have in the Old Testament under the ceremonial law, he says it's only a shadow. You see that he mentions three things here. There is the shadow and there is the image, and there is the reality. Now, if you went out and stood in an evening on your lawn, you're, you would be the reality. Now, if you had a friendly artist or a photographer, and they take a picture, and they set it beside you, then you've got the image. You've got the reality. You've got the image. But then as the sun is going down, what happens? You've got the shadow. So you've got the reality and you've got the image and you've got the shadow. Now the image is very like the reality, but it's still not the reality. It may have all the many details it may be the most perfect image, but still not the reality. It's an image. The shadow is neither the reality nor the image. The shadow is a very kind of obscure likeness. We know the reality exists because of the shadow. No reality, no shadow. Now, here's the apostle speaking of the law, here he's referring to the ceremonial law. Not the moral law, but the ceremonial law. Now, you must understand, of course, the two are connected because the ceremonial law doesn't have any make any sense without the knowledge of a broken moral law. It's because of the broken moral law we have The ceremonial law. The sacrifices and the priesthood and so on. Now here, what is the apostle saying? The law, the ceremonial law, having a shadow. It has a shadow of good things to come. It's only a shadow. And then what does he say? and not the very image of the things. He's telling us that what we have in the Old Testament, in the ceremonial law, in the tabernacle, in the altar, in the sacrifices, in the priesthood, that's only a shadow. That's a shadow of the good things that are to come. And the shadow isn't even the image of the good things that are to come. It is so remote in a sense, it exists because of the reality, but it cannot possibly convey to you and me all the majesty and all the glory and all the wonder Of the reality, it is so, so far, as it were, beneath the reality it cannot possibly convey to us all the glory of the reality. Now, when he says here, the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image. What does the apostle tell us at the very beginning of this epistle? Chapter 1. Speaking of God, speaking through his Son. He has spoken to us through the prophets. Now he's speaking through his Son. And he says, he is the brightness of his glory and the express image. Ah, the priest... In the Old Testament, he's only a shadow. And we may see him clothed in his garments of beauty and glory. We may see him exercise a most unique kind of ministry, interceding for the people with God. He's the mediator between them and God. He was a vitally important link, as it were, between God and the people. But he's only a shadow. Here's, he's not even the, he's not the real image. He can convey certain truths to us. He can teach us certain truths. But the glorious son, through whom God is pleased to speak, he is the very express image. He is Such an express image that where you find him, you find the reality. Where you see him, you see the reality. He is the express image. Now, we ought to keep that in mind when we come to the things that are revealed to us here in this chapter 4 of Revelation. Because here, we are faced with the heavenly realities. Now, if the only way that the Israelites could be taught of the reality was via the shadows, they were not, they were as it were, spiritual children. It would be way beyond them to comprehend the great realities of God and His redemptive covenant work. So they're taught by these simple ceremonies and they're only the shadows. But if you or you see a little child out in the lawn and he sees stretched out in the evening great long shadow and he decides he'll begin to walk along the shadow Say it's a shadow of a huge tree he begins and he keeps walking along the shadow where does it bring him to he's suddenly standing beneath a huge tree you follow the shadow brings you to the reality and that's what here John has brought Now beyond the shadows and the images to the very reality of God himself. The reality of his throne. This in reality is God's command center. That's where John is. He's right before the very throne of God. What we have before us is God's administrative center. That's what John is to be encouraged by. He's seeing here where the realities on earth, the events, all the sufferings, the afflictions, everything that's going on at that time, it's all being sovereignly administered here. God is showing John that he's in control. There are no accidents down where John is in the Isle of Patmos. It's not an accident that he happens to be there, maybe working in the mines, as we said, and so on. It's all being carefully administered according to the sovereign purpose of God. So the first thing that we need to look at now, is how John describes the occupant of the throne. What does he say? Behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now, immediately, wouldn't we want to hear, tell us about him, John. Tell us about the one in on the throne. Describe him for us. One sat on the throne. A reality, a real person. One sat on the throne. An individual sat on the throne. A real personage was present. Now then, What does John say about this one who sits in the throne? He that sat was to look upon. If anyone else looked like me, used their eyes, used their the uh, visible imagination as John would be doing, what would they see? What would they expect to see? Now, someone asked me last week, what about pictures of Jesus when I was seeking to explain the nonsense or refute some of the nonsense that people have gotten into their heads about graven images Read again what we have in Exodus 20, just to refresh our minds, because that's where we have, again, it's in Deuteronomy. But in Exodus 20, we have the law, the commandments given to us by Moses. Verse 3. <coughs> Thou shalt have no other gods Before me. Thou shalt have no other gods. I am the one and only God. I am that I am. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness Of what? Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything. Of anything. Now in the Hebrew, that is not the word thing is not, it's not there. And the translators have put it in and correctly so, it, it, it makes sense in the, in the Hebrew context, it's perfectly right that it's there. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, and so on. And bow down to it. Now they made lots of things. The cherubims, all sorts of things in heaven and in earth were in the tabernacle, in the temple, throughout the camp of Israel. But they were forbidden, as we said, to bow down to them and worship them. The high priest, his garments, What do they represent? What do they typify? The very high priest of uh, of Melchizedek after the order of Melchizedek. The earthly things, these shadows, they typified divine heavenly realities. They were not to worship the shadows. They were not to worship the images. But There are those, and they think, so long as we don't worship, we can still paint what our imaginations tell us God might look like. And so you have children's books, perhaps, and they've got some idea of God, As I said last week, maybe an old, white-haired gentleman with a long, white beard and so on. Very tender-looking, loving, because the idea is to try to portray the character of God and so on. Note that word, thing. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of any thing that is in heaven above. God is not a thing. That's what makes the difference. God is pure, eternal, infinite, invisible spirit. God is not a thing. Now, and then you say well that's all right we accept that about god but what about jesus he was a real man he was born he had a body he had a face he had features he was human go with me over to the book of luke chapter uh, the chapter 2 of luke where we have Uh, There, or chapter 1, I should have said, Luke chapter 1, when the angel comes to visit Mary, tells her she is going to have this child. And in verse 34, Mary said, verse 34 of Luke 1, unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? The angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, therefore also that holy thing. Because there's a real body here. There's a real birth takes place. There's a real human existence here. He takes of mere substance. He is born of her mead of a woman, made under the law this holy thing so that the body that was formed there in the womb of the virgin is one of these things now then whenever the angels beheld their creator in this world In his human form. What were they told? They had never seen him like this before. Their creator. He'd been from all eternity. Pure. Infallible. Immutable spirit. Let all the angels of God worship him. Yes he has a human form. He is humanly visible. But he is an object of worship. Why? Because that holy thing that was formed in the womb was a body prepared, specially prepared. Body has to be prepared for me. And he took into union with his divine person, a sinless human nature, and they cannot be separated. And that's why I believe that it is wrong to depict the Savior in human form, because his humanity is eternally at one with the divine person, the second person of the Trinity. Therefore, although there is a human body, a human nature, it is the object of worship being eternally God, God and man in two distinct natures, one person. One person, and it's the person of the eternal son. So, there is a limit. While it is not wrong even to have certain things, and I know from experience, when people get ridiculous ideas into their head, they can wreck a congregation and I have had experience, sore experience with young men with extreme ideas breaking the hearts of old and godly elders with their extreme views wanting certain pieces of furniture to be moved out of the house of God because they had carvings on them these are images God didn't say you can't have any image of anything. He said you cannot worship it. And that's the difference. And here, what is John to do now? How is he going to convey to us these tremendous, majestic, and glorious realities? He that sat upon the throne was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. That was the best he could uh, convey to those who would hear it. There was a rainbow round about the throne and sight unto an emerald. That's the description. As I said last week, how do you depict the invisible? How do you depict the infinite? How do you uh, depict the immortal? You think of all these excellent, incommunicable attributes of God, how do you depict them? This is one of the problems with clever modern man. He thinks, I should be able to understand everything eventually. May not understand it now, but given time and enough time to investigate and analyze and uh, so on, I should be able to understand everything. Well... The Westminster Divines were very wise in that they said God is incomprehensible. We ought to keep that in mind. Yes, the Catechism says God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, justice, and truth. That's a description of God. But how do you put that onto, how do you put that onto canvas? That's impossible. Here is John telling us that God himself is on this throne and all he can tell us is it is a majesty, it is a glory that surpasses all the comprehension of man. All I can tell you is this. What I saw, that glory shining forth, exhibiting itself from that throne, the nearest I can come is this. It was like a jasper, a sardine stone, like a like a diamond, like a sardine, a red. This is all he can say. Now we sang from Sam one, or we read rather from Psalm 104 for a reason because there, what does the psalmist say? Psalm 104, the beginning of the psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, thou art very great. Thou art clothed With honor and majesty, who coverest thyself with light as with a garment. Thou coverest thyself with light. We looked at what Paul told Timothy last week. God dwells in light that no man can approach unto. So that all we can see, as it were, is the light. Behind the light is God who hath clothed himself with the majesty of that light as with a garment. And all John can see is I could, what I saw. Was a majestic, glorious light. But God was there. Now it is also important that we understand the nature of this throne that is occupied. There was a throne set in heaven in Psalm 93 and we noted it last week. Psalm 93, the beginning of the psalm itself, there we read, The Lord reigneth, he is clothed with majesty, the Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he hath girded himself. Bears to thy throne is established of old, thou art from everlasting. God's throne is as eternal and everlasting as himself. But we shall see the connection between the 24 elders and the four beasts. They are all part, as it were, of this throne. They are all, as it were, agents in this administration. They're all serving God's purposes. And perhaps we should look at what God himself has to say about his throne in various places in the Old Testament. We have quite a number of references to God's throne in the Psalms. But when Solomon, whenever Solomon was... uh, crowned when he came to take the throne after David. This is what we're told in 1st Chronicles and the chapter 29. Verse 23 of 1st Chronicles 29 Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord. He sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father and prospered and all Israel obeyed him. Now why do you think it says that he sat on the throne of the Lord? It doesn't say he sat in the throne of Jerusalem, or he sat in the throne of Israel. He sat on the throne of the Lord. Because if you go with me over to Jeremiah the prophecy of Jeremiah in the third chapter, you will see there another reference. It's the same throne that is referred to. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 17. And we're not looking at the context for the sake of time. At that time, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. They shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall be gathered unto it, the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more in the imagination of their evil heart, and so on. And you have that again in the chapter 14. Uh, Here's the prophet pleading before God, Jeremiah 14, verse 21, Do not abhor us. For thy name's sake do not disgrace the throne of thy glory. Now why do the prophets speak this way? Because God exercises His authority. He administers His covenant. He administers his kingdom via instruments and agents such as Solomon. The throne did not belong to Solomon. He couldn't take his seat in the throne and then announce to the Israelites, I am king now. You will all obey me. Whatever I decree becomes law. I'm a very wise man. Solomon had to understand, this throne belongs to God. I am simply his agent. My power is nothing more than executive power and authority. God is using me to fulfill his purpose, to serve him. And Israel, Jerusalem the throne. Why? God was using Israel, the Hebrew nation, Jerusalem in particular as the city of Israel's solemnities. God was using them. He put the oracles among them. He gave them the law. What for? To become a blessing to the nations. That's what he did it for. So, when you see what is happening, the blessings that the nations and the gospel receive, what are we to understand? It was the throne that John saw. The administration of God's covenant purposes that John was a witness to. These on earth, are being administered through mortal men, through historic circumstances. God is bringing to pass on earth what a purpose is in heaven. So here, in Revelation 4, we have this very throne. Now, the one throne that John would have been very much aware of was Caesar's throne. He would have been aware, of course, of the throne of Herod and so on, but particularly the throne of the Caesars, the Roman throne, the Roman power. And here's John seeing another throne. And at this throne, there is a power A majestic, glorious, indescribable, incomprehensible power. What's it doing? It's administering things on earth. And how many Christians get themselves into serious trouble because they forget that. And they think God has lost control of things. What's the poor church going to do? What are we poor Christians going to do? Look at the laws they're passing. Look at what they're doing. What John is to understand is this. All the affairs, whether you understand them or not, they are administered from here. John, I am in control. Now, what do we see associated with this throne then? Four and twenty elders. And they are seated on seats around the throne. They are part of this administration. As I said, the church in heaven... It's Presbyterian, so it ought to be Presbyterian here on earth. Round about the throne were four and twenty seats, or thrones. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment. Now this wouldn't be mysterious to Johnny; would understand perfectly what this means. there were four and twenty presbyters. And they are ruling with Christ. They are administering his covenant purposes. Now, they are obviously redeemed here. They're glorified. They're in white raiment, and they have crowns on their head. Who are they? Well, we shall see later... There are the 12 patriarchs, 12 apostles. When you go back to the Old Testament and you read of the names of the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob, what do they represent? Just 12 patriarchs. Of course not. They represented the whole congregation of Israel. They represented the whole church of God in the Old Testament. When we come to the New Testament, what do we have? Twelve apostles. Who are they? They are the very foundation upon which the church is founded and built. Foundation of the apostles. Prophets, the apostles, and prophets. So here we have the rule as it were, the the administration of God's covenant purposes in perfection. They are noted as clothed in white raiment. Now we noted the sea And Solomon's temple, the laver and the tabernacle, the great sea resting upon these oxen. What was that for? The priests who ministered to God washed themselves there before they would engage in the service of God. They had to be clean. They had to purify themselves at that lever and then in the temple at that great molten sea. Now what do we have here? Before the throne we've looked at it the great crystal sea. It is different. This isn't the shadow. Here we have The facility provided for the cleansing of the elders who come near to God to serve him. This is not the great molten sea that Solomon produced with all these 24,000 gallons of water in it. Nothing like that. This is the fountain open. For sin and for uncleanness. This is the lever at which sinners are cleansed and washed. And the elders are robed in white raiments. What does John later find out? These that are arrayed in white robes. How come they here? They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And these are they who are here associated with the throne of God. Their dress is white raiment and on their heads are crowns of gold. They are kings and priests and they have crowns of gold because they have overcome. And they're now in the presence of God. Their dignity is very obvious. White robes, crowns of gold. They are dignified because they are near to God. This is the reality. This is not the shadow. This is the reality. Any man who is a presbyter, who is an elder, ought to go and read passages like this. What's a real elder like? What's a real presbyter like? In heaven, he's recognized as one of its dignified inhabitants. He is a redeemed sinner, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, washed in the blood and redeemed by it, crowned because he is in Christ and Christ is in him, crowned like the apostle Paul. What was he waiting for? Now ready to depart. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord will give me. Now here they take their crowns, as we shall see, and they cast them down before the occupant of the throne. They do not. Heaven, my dear friends, is a place where the atmosphere is all humility. Holy, heavenly atmosphere. No flesh shall glory in his presence. No flesh. And here are these holy presbyters casting their crowns down in the presence of the glorious King of Zion. Now, uh, in addition, you see their very deportment. They had on their heads crowns of gold, and they cast them down in the presence of God. Verse 9, when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat in the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down. Oh, they may be in white robes, They might have golden crowns. They might have high and honorable office. But before their God, they cast themselves down. Oh, they feel, even in a glorified state, they still feel the deep heart need for utmost reverence and a right and heavenly deportment. My, my, my. You tell me, my dear friends, how the average Christian is ever going to fit into heaven. How? With their irreverence, their undignified attitudes and conduct. How? will they ever, ever know how to conduct themselves in the presence of the God who has glorified his people? I hear more and more people trying to excuse casual attitudes, casual conduct, casual dress, Everything casual. Doesn't matter. God's not worried about things like that, I'm told. We happen to differ. Here we're not looking at the shadow. We're looking at the reality. There's nothing sinful. No intrusion of anything sinful anywhere here. It is pure heaven. Here are men in a state beyond which they can never ever hope to be exalted. The highest, most glorified state in existence. This is the purest Worship in the universe. You cannot possibly imagine there's any error in it or any part of it that shouldn't be. Here we have the purest, heavenly, God-honoring worship you can comprehend. you see how the worshipers conduct themselves. And if we don't have some, at least some semblance to heavenly worship, what kind of worship do we have? If we don't have some kind of semblance to heavenly attitudes, what kind of attitudes do we have? I here are the elders around the throne, but there are four strange creatures. We are told that there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne which are the seven spirits of God. Now we shall look at them but for the present. And before the throne, there was a sea of glass, like unto crystal, and so on. Then, in verse 7, or the end of verse 6, there were round about... Now, look at carefully what it says. Verse 6, the middle of the verse. And in the midst of the throne... I note that, in the midst of the throne and round about the throne. In the midst of the throne, but also round about the throne. Now, that's the only way John can describe it, you see. His finite comprehension is comprehending the scene, conveying to you and me what he comprehends. And he sees these four unique creatures. They're in the midst of the throne, and at the same time, they're round about the throne. Now, John doesn't try to explain all this. He just states it. But, when he describes these creatures... Then we begin to understand what he's talking about. There were these four beasts full of eyes. They were full of eyes before and behind. What does that mean? Well, you've only got eyes before you. You can't see through the back of your head, can you? Because you don't have eyes behind. What's the idea here? Here are these creatures and they have eyes. They're full of eyes. They don't just have two eyes. They're full of eyes. They're all eyes. Eyes before and eyes behind. They see the future, they see the past. They see what is to come, and they see what has already come. They are aware of history and of the future. That's why they're in the midst of the throne as well as round about the throne. Now we're told then, verse 8 The four beasts, each of them had six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. They're full of eyes without. They're full of eyes within. What's the purpose then of these beasts? To put it in the simplest form is to see. What else would you expect? To see, but they are part of the administration of this throne. Now let's see what it says further about these beasts, what they look like. The first beast was like a lion. the second beast like a calf or an oxen. The third beast, had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. Let me ask before we go any further. If you were asked to depict God, you'd have a problem. If I asked you, can you depict providence? Could you paint me a picture of providence? How would you do that? Well, you'd say, well, I believe in Providence. I'm sure and certain Providence is something very real. And I know in my life, I've experienced Providence guiding my affairs, opening doors here, closing up doors there, Providence. But how do you depict providence? God is administering his covenant purposes in what? Catechism says, in the works of creation and providence. You can understand the works of creation. What about the works of providence? How do you depict them? This is John being Here in form, he's seeing these, what they really mean is living creatures. And they convey the whole idea of the sovereign providence and purpose of God. Now, as I said, John would understand this from what is... For example, written in the prophecy of Ezekiel, the first chapter, you have the prophet Ezekiel. He's by the river Kebar in uh, Babylon. And he has this vision, like John. And here he tells us of these living creatures. How does he describe them? Verse 10 of Ezekiel 1 As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side and they four had the face of an ox on the left side and the four had the face of an eagle. Exactly the same. What does this mean? Well, Ezekiel tells us and it's Again, so incomprehensible, yet he's conveying the idea behind what he sees. These wheels moving. That's what a wheel does. It revolves. But then he was seeing wheels revolving within the wheels. You've you've heard people speak of certain things. They want a, a job or a position, What do they say? Well, there's wheels within wheels. Wheels within wheels. You know the right people, they can turn this wheel and then there's somebody else can turn another wheel within that wheel to bring about a desired end. This is what Ezekiel is seeing. God is showing. Ezekiel, you may be in Babylon. It's all part of the purpose of God. The wheels are within wheels, working out the sovereign purpose of God. And notice these beasts in Ezekiel 1, they always go forward. They don't go back. They're always moving forward. The purpose of God is never reversed. It's always moving forward to his own desired and designed end. And, notice, their wings are joined one to another. What does that mean? Wherever you get one, you get the other. Wherever you get the one that's like unto a lion you also get joined to him the one that is like unto the ox and joined is the one like unto a man and joined is the one like unto the eagle. So they move together in perfect harmony taking forward, moving forward the purpose of God. But what does the lion represent? Power. What does the oxen represent? Strength. What does the man represent? Intelligence. What does the eagle represent? It represents the vision. The eagle, of course, you'll know is the only bird that can actually fly into the heavens with its eyes open toward the sun. It can see where nothing else can see. And here is the eagle, vigilant, observing all that's going on. This is providence, God's sovereign providence. The power in his providence, the strength to fulfill his providential purposes, the intelligence, the eternal wisdom to do so. And the knowledge of all things in order to do it. Here's John at the throne. What's he seeing? God administering his purposes. In providence. Not one thing out of place. Not one iota of error in the judgments of God and you and I are in there isn't that something little wonder we see when these beasts give praise to God with all the knowledge they have the elders fall down and they worship because they see the glory of God administering everything in this universe for his glory but for the good of his church. And you know what John was seeing? Why they didn't see all the details, and that vision if it could all be unfolded, he would have seen you and I sitting right here. Not one accident is found in the divine purpose of God and if you were to look back you might think of a thousand reasons why you wouldn't be but heaven was administering your life and your providences to bring you to Christ and bring you here this very day ah little wonder they cast their crowns down And fell down when they saw the glory of God's majesty and God's administrative power. But we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, how great thou art. Oh, do thou open our understanding that we might see the wonders of thy kingdom. And that we might this day lift up our hearts and our voices to praise Thee, that we are under Thy care. Lord God, may Thy people ever be mindful of this. They are under the administrative care of the glorious Jehovah. Bless Thy truth to us. Pardon our sins receivers. For Christ's sake. Amen.